All right, if you have a Bible, please turn with me to the book of Romans. It's the last sermon for a month or so in the book of Romans. We've been going through this together since September, and we are now in Romans chapter 6. I'm going to read from verse 15 to the end of the chapter, and then invite God to come and speak to us through his word. Let's pray. Father, we come and submit ourselves to your word. Lord, ultimately we need to hear from you for our lives. You know all the needs that we've got in this room. You know all the different hang-ups and doubts and questions. You know, you know. And I ask that through your word, you would come and take my words and speak to each of us. Amen. So Paul writes this. What then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have now become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is God's word. Now part of the challenge of preaching through a a letter each Sunday is that when Paul wrote this to a church, he wrote it as a letter. Uh, Whereas what we do is we chunk it up into tiny little bits and we present them as like separate bits. And that's difficult for us when we get to something like Romans 6 because so much of it is so dependent on what's come before. It's the difference between popping up tents and building a building. Every Sunday when we preach, it's as though we are popping up a tent and going, what do you think? This is what Paul has said. This is what Paul has said. (laughs) This tree is taking over the, the room. Have you noticed that? Um, it's going to grow. It's like the day of the Triffids. Um, anyone know what that is? Yes, few. Thank you. Um, but it's the difference between popping up tents and building a house. And what Paul has been doing over the past few chapters, goodness knows how many weeks, 10 weeks, is he's been building foundations, digging foundations in which he wants to construct a Christian house, essentially how to live as followers of Christ. And so before we get into what he's talking about in the, in the bit that I just read, I want us to just start back a bit and think, well, what's, what are the foundations that Paul's been laying in order to him say the things that he's just said? And the first thing we've noticed is that Paul is writing a, a letter to a church. This is situational. He's addressing it to real people in history, addressing their real situation. And the reality is in this church, there are, there are those, who, it's called Romans because it's written to a church in Rome. And in the church, there are people who are Romans. I know, clever, right? There are people who are Romans, people who are, you know, of the empire of Rome, and there are those who are Jewish people who've become Christians. 
And the situation he knows exists in the church is that the Romans feel like they're the insiders, they're the proper Christians, and the Jews are the outsiders, the, the has-beens. And the Jews are sitting there going, we're the insiders, and they're the outsiders. Because you see, for the Romans, well, the Romans are Romans, and Rome rules the world at the time. And so they think, well, we're Romans. We are definitely God's chosen people. We're the important ones. Everything in history has been building up to us, and here we are. And the Jews, well, you're the has-beens because, you know, you've rejected God's Messiah, whereas we've accepted him. Whereas the Jews are sitting there going, no, no, we're God's people because, have you read the Old Testament? It's all about us. We're God's chosen people. We're the insiders. And you Romans, the Gentiles, you're the outsiders. So this is the clash that's going on. And Paul writes to them and he says, listen, it is the gospel, the, the good news of Jesus, that is the hope of the world. Romans and Jews. And then he goes on in, chapters in chapter 2 to make the point for them that we are all helpless. Essentially, he says, listen, we're all on equal standing before God. There's no insiders and outsiders. Outside of Jesus, we're all outsiders. And we, together, we looked at that bit in Romans 2 where he says, there is no one who does good, not even one. And we stood in the dark together and we said, this is cold. This is bleak. This doesn't give us much hope for the future. And then he says, but now God has sent his son. And so he's writing to his people and that's the foundations that he's digging. And then in chapter 3 onwards into what we, into where we're at, he's making the point that despite the fact that we are united in our hopelessness, we are all of us able to be approved before God, not on the basis of our ethnicity, not on the basis of our class or our intelligence or on our good behavior. We are able to be approved before God. We're able to stand before the creator of the universe and look him in the eye, so to speak. Know that he looks at you and says, I love you. We're able to do that not on the basis of anything else other than our faith in his son, the one who's been sent to forgive us. So he lays those foundations for us. And if you remember, we, we, we went on a journey with Paul through history in a river canoe, down through Abraham and David and Martin Luther and John Newton, and said, throughout history, it's always been the same. No one can stand before God and be approved and have any confidence that they're right with God. No one can outside of hoping in his kindness that's been revealed in Jesus. And so now the question that Paul starts to address for the church is how then shall we live? I mean, it's a good question, isn't it? I'm approved before God. We're all equal. You and me, we're together. There's no difference between you and me. All of us are equally in need of God. All of us are equally approved by God through Jesus. So now, how shall we live? And that's the, the question that's in his mind when in verse 15 he says, what then, shall we carry on sinning because we're not under law but under grace? Essentially, how should we live? Should we live like this? He says, by no means. Of course, there's a different way to live. And what he wants to do is to start to build now a house of Christian lifestyle. This is what it means to live as a Christian. And the reason the context is important is because you need to hear, in this bit in particular, he's addressing people who are Christians, who've put their faith in Jesus. So if you're exploring Christianity and you're not sure if you call yourself a Christian, you might feel a little bit on the outside of some of this, but... Believe me, the last 10 weeks or so have basically been Paul's way of saying, come on in, come and listen to this. Now, at the end of every year, we ask that question ourselves. How should we live now? I mean, 2020 is coming. In 2020, we're going to make resolutions that by 
two days in, we'll have forgotten. But we're going to make those resolutions because we will live in 2020. We will live more peaceful. We will be more spiritual. We will be more committed to God. We will learn French. We will take up the guitar. Um, we will, I don't know, shave our heads. I'm not sure that's a news resolution. Um, we'll do things. We'll make resolutions because we want to decide how we're going to live. But Paul is asking the question, how should we live? Not on the basis of some arbitrary turning of the clock. He's asking it on the basis of a significant event in a person's life. Because he says, when you put your faith in Jesus, and when you get baptized, as Michelle was talking about, and what Paul's been talking about in chapter 6, when you get baptized and you put your faith in Jesus, you die. And I don't know who you are, I don't care who you are, uh, your death is a significant moment in your life. Uh, And that's what he's saying to this church. Something significant has happened. You've died. And so the question, how then shall we live, is not on the basis of, let's, let's try harder now that we're Christians, now that it's 2020, or soon to become 2020. It's now that we've died with Christ, and we've come back to life with Christ, how then shall we live? And so you see, the question is less about making New Year's resolutions, and it's more about, given the regime change, it's, it's more like the sorts of things you were thinking about on Friday morning after the general election. How should we live? There's a new government. There's a new political reality. What difference is that going to make to my life? When I, when I first became a Christian, my, um, my parents were hoping it was just a phase, a fad, because they knew at the time I'd had phases and fads. You know, I was really into the X-Files once and was really intrigued by UFO stories. And then I decided, oh, I'm not interested. I want to be an astronaut. And so then when I came home one day and said I've become a Christian, they thought, okay, <laughs> it's the next thing, is it? But they misunderstood that in becoming a Christian, it wasn't a fad. It was, I was basically telling them, I've signed away the rights to my life. I have bowed my knee to a different master. And in fact, on one occasion in my uh, early Christian life, I actually did that. I wrote a document that said, Jesus, I give you my life, signed, and then I didn't know where to deliver it, so I just put it in front of me, stared at it, and then threw it in the bin. But still, (laughs) I wrote a contract and said, Lord, you have my life. And that's really what Paul is getting at with this church here. In verse 18, he says to them, um, where is verse 18? It's gone. Having died to that which held you cap... No, that's no... Someone find for me verse 18. Do you ever find this? The Bible moves. Ah, there it is. Found it. Having been set free from sin, you've now become slaves of righteousness. And this matters. You're no no longer under under slavery to sin. You have a new ruler, he tells them. And this matters because your old master only ever brought about death in your life. And your new master wants to bring about life for you. It's as though he knows what's happened in becoming a Christian is that you have been parachuted into a new land. And upon arriving in this new place, you have to ask those questions. Who's in charge? What are the laws here? Who do I pay taxes to? What should I wear? What language do they speak? It's not like traveling somewhere within the EU, which will only be an experience for the next few months. It's not like traveling somewhere within the EU where you think, it doesn't matter because wherever I go, there'll be a Lineker's bar and I can get a full English breakfast and I'm sure if I just speak my English slowly enough, they'll understand. Paul says this is entirely different. You have an entirely different master. It's as though 
Well, we have a Christmas tree here, so we're going to imagine together this morning. We have, we have been teleported to a new land where there are giant Christmas trees, Christmas land, perhaps. And now here we are in Christmas land. We have to ask, so how do we live now that we're in Christmas land or the triffids, the, the plants are taking over the world? And in that sense, it's more like arriving somewhere like Papua New Guinea uh, and living among the tribes people and having to work out how do we survive in the jungle? The jungle is not my friend. And so, how do we live? Let's look at this together. This is what Paul says. The first thing we notice in a verse that I didn't read to you, so you wouldn't have noticed it. In verse 14, he says, sin can have no dominion over you. In other words, it's not your boss anymore. Why? Because you're not under law, but you're under grace. The first thing we notice about Christmas land is that the climate is different. Your winter, your shorts and flip-flops won't do you any favors here. Whereas before you became a Christian, you lived in the land of law, where the climate was rules and regulations, now you live in the land of grace, where the climate is entirely different. You see, before you became a Christian, he tells them, God used law to try to restrict the damage that your own selfishness will do. So that's why we have laws in this country. Laws are against speeding or against food laws to stop us killing one another and doing stupid things. Or we have, we have laws of financial regulation to try to limit human greed. And in the land of law, where law is king, you, you need law to stop, you, stop your sinfulness and your selfishness killing you and killing others. But now you become a Christian, it's different, different climate. I'll let you into a little confession. This week I, um, I failed. Oh, am I? Oh, wow, thank you. This is something else we've learned about Christmas land. I'll let you into um, a little confession. This past week I failed as a parent. Um, I had one of those mornings where I um, didn't do what I was supposed to do as a dad and made bad choices. Um, and, uh, and it resulted in, I won't give you the ins and the outs, um, it resulted in Amy leaving for work with an exasperated sigh, which is quite a common occurrence in our house. And it resulted in me losing my temper at my middle son and me essentially having to drag him to school while he cried and shoving him into the classroom and walking away, rubbing my hands, saying I'm having nothing to do with him ever again. And as I walked away, oh, I felt bad. I mean, I felt like I'd failed. And I was very aware that his behavior was my fault. I had behaved poorly. And as I walked away, guilt, condemnation, sense of failure overtakes me. And then I remind myself, that's true, but I don't live in the land of law anymore. I live in the land of grace. So whereas failure would once want to just condemn me and put guilt on me, now I'm in the land of grace. So I can come to my father and I can say, Father, I failed. And he'll say, yes, you have. And I say, but I know you love me. Yes, I do. And I say, now I know you're going to help me. Yes, I will. I forgive you. Let's work this out together. But the climate's different now that I'm a Christian, rather than just living. And we, we don't know how to deal with this, because as human beings, all we really know is law, guilt. We know how to produce boundaries. If I've done something wrong, just tell me what to do. When people become a Christian, they're like, tell me what laws I need to obey. Like, things are different. We don't regulate our behavior through law, but through grace. God's kindness is the way I relate to him now. 
not have I kept the rules today? That's the first thing we notice about Christmas land, or the land of becoming a Christian. How then shall we live? Well, the first thing now that we're in this new land, we need to work out who's in charge here. Santa? <laughs> who's in charge? In verse 16, he says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as an obedient slave, you are slaves of the one you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. He essentially writes to them and tells them, you're a slave of someone, you just need to work out whose slave you are. Which, if we're honest, is one of the worst images that Paul could have used. He's writing to the Romans. Romans aren't slaves. Romans rule the world. Well, actually, a lot of Romans were slaves, because I think about 50% of their economy was run by slaves, but that's neither here nor there. We're not slaves. All the Jews would say, we're not slaves. We're children of God. Paul says, you are a slave. You're either a slave of sin or you're a slave of righteousness. And actually, we might see, I'm not a slave. Don't be silly. But the philosopher David Hume would disagree. Um, he says that we are all our slaves of our passions. You're, you think I'm a reasonable person. You think I'm a thoughtful person. I make informed decisions in my life. David Hume would say, no, no, your reason is a slave. We are all, our reason is slaves to our passions, to your desires, the things that you want. And they're the things that drive you, really. The Bible says that your passions are under slavery to sin. And so the reason I act selfishly is because I'm under the power of self-centeredness and self-centered living. The reason I might act sinfully is because I'm under the power of sin. Jesus would agree as well. Jesus said anyone who sins is a slave to sin. In other words, you're not free. Well, Paul says you, are, you were free of something. In verse 20, he says, before you were a slave of righteousness, you were a slave to sin. And at that time, he says, you were, you were free in regard to righteousness. In other words, before you became a Christian, you could live however you wanted, but you couldn't please God. So you weren't entirely free. And he says, what benefit did that bring you at that time? And that's where Jesus says, that anyone who sins is a slave to sin, but the Son has come in order that you might be free, and free indeed. Jesus offers the Christian freedom, but freedom is different from independence. Here comes the hail again. Freedom is different from independence. The question isn't, are you free or not? The question is, is how you're living bringing you life, or is it bringing you and leading you ultimately to death? And that's why this matters. So the, the second thing we've learned is that we, in this new land, we need to find out who's in charge. The third thing we need to, we need to learn about Christmas land, we need to, to live here, we need to make a decision. So there's someone else in charge, Santa or righteousness. Now the question is, what are the laws of this land that I need to obey? How do I keep on the right side of the law? And this is what he says in verse 17. He says, you were once slaves, but you've become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you've been entrusted. There is a standard of teaching, a way of being. When you become a Christian, you transfer allegiance from that master to this master to this way of being. And this is a process throughout our lives. Jesus said, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, and then he says, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. To be a follower of Jesus is to be a lifelong student of his laws, of his ways. 
Jesus was the most profound and wisest human teacher there's ever been, or will there ever be. And a lot of his teaching isn't so much a, you must do this, as it is an observation of these are the universal laws in the world. Trust me, follow me, and you'll flourish. So in Matthew 11, he says to people, uh, he says, if anyone is tired or weary or heavy laden, he says, come to me and I'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you. In other words, take, take my way of being, my way of behaving. Take my law upon you. Jesus comes to people who are tired and weary and says, are you tired? Here, carry this. He doesn't say, are you tired? Come to me and put your feet up. He says, the reason you're tired is because you are, you've got the wrong yoke. You've got the wrong law. Come, take my law, my way of being on you. And Jesus points out some universal truths in the way that he teaches. And any time you go to a new class, you have to take their standard of teaching on you if you want to flourish. So you would go to Pilates, you listen to your Pilates instructor. You go trekking in the hills, you listen to your, you go, you take up a musical instrument, you listen to your teacher, you take their standard of teaching on you. It's the same in Christianity. Jesus offers you a law, a way of being, a rule for life. And these are some of the things that Jesus said. He said, it is more blessed to give than it is to receive. He's not telling you to do anything. He's just saying it is. He, he says elsewhere, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. In the end, he's not telling you to do anything. He's just saying it is. And in a large section in the Sermon on the Mount where he's addressing the theme of worry, he says, listen, we worry about the things we're devoted to, so seek the kingdom of God and everything else that you're worried about will fall into place. Again, he is telling you what to do there. It's slightly different, but he's, he's laying down there's principles at play here of you worry about the things you're devoted to. And so he says, don't worry about tomorrow because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day is enough troubles of its own. In other words, worry about the moment. Live today. The original form of mindfulness. Mindfulness is, is increasingly encouraged as a practice and it's, it's there in Jesus in fact, mindfulness is basically secular prayer without the best bit, which is being able to talk to our Father about it. Jesus says, live in the moment. Don't worry about tomorrow. Worry about now. Because tomorrow, worry about itself. And in all these things, Jesus is laying out, this is what it means to take my yoke upon you. And there's one philosopher who says, when we disregard some of these truths in the universe, it's as though we, we rub our hand against the grain of the universe, the wrong way against the grain of the universe. You done that? You rubbed your hand against the wrong way on a fence post? <laughs> what do you get? Splinters. Yes, thank you. I know. Audience participation. I didn't prepare you for it, did I? Um, you get splinters. <laughs> we rub our hand the wrong way against the grain of the universe. Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. And we say that's lovely, but I'd quite like to receive and receive more and consume and keep. And that's fine. You can live like that. But if you do that, you rub your hand the wrong way against the universe. We're teaching my boys a, a proverb at the moment in the Bible that says, the world of the generous gets larger and larger, but the world of the stingy gets smaller and smaller. It's that same idea. You can be stingy and you'll get splinters, or you can be generous and you'll get larger and larger. Although my kids just think it literally means you get fatter and fatter. So we have to teach them. It's a metaphor, you stupid child. Um, I wouldn't call them stupid in public. Um, <laughs> It's the same with worry. 
you can worry about lots of things, and many of, many of us are very good at this. Uh, in fact, I'm married to someone who worries a lot on your behalf, so you don't need to worry about worrying, because she's pretty good at it. And some of you are professional worriers, which is fine. Uh, but you know when you worry, you're rubbing your hand the wrong way against the grain. The universe says, live in the moment, think about the moment. And we say, mm-hmm, I'm just going to think about tomorrow, though. And I'm going to imagine things that could go wrong in the next 10 minutes. Instead, we need practices. Jesus' yoke, we say, I'm going to live. His, and what, I'm, I'm saying all of this because the Apostle Paul says, you have been committed to a standard of teaching. When you become a Christian, you don't reinvent Christianity. You don't say, I'll take that bit, I won't take that bit. Part of the reason why you don't do that is because Jesus, in his teaching, lays out universal truths that in disobeying them, we do ourselves harm. Paul says, when you're a slave to sin, it leads only to death, but when you're a slave to righteousness, it produces life. That's why this matters. We receive the standard of teaching that's been given to us. And the third thing, lastly, the way that we live in this land so we've seen the climate is different in Christmas land. Uh, we've seen there's a new ruler in Christmas land and that there's a standard of teaching that we need to obey. But also, how should we live? Well, Paul makes it clear as well in what we read. You live with your body, like every fiber of your being, your heart and soul, your strength. You live practically. This is what he says in verse 19. He says, just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity, now present your members as slaves to righteousness. He says, the members of your body. You used to offer your body as members of sla as slaves of sin. Now offer the members of your body as slaves to righteousness. In other words, Christianity, living for Jesus, involves more than just prayer meetings. It involves your body involves your lifestyle. It involves everything about your living and breathing, your eating and drinking kind of life. Jesus says, I don't just want your prayer life. I want your love life. I want your work life. I want your leisure life. I want it all. I want every member of your body to be offered to me. Because when you didn't, when you offered it to sin, what did it, what did it bring you? It, Paul, Paul says, the things you're now ashamed of? In fact, when I... I became a Christian at uni and um, one of my housemates had a camera and he would film a lot of what we did in our student house and then um, a couple of years after becoming a Christian my life had changed quite significantly. One of the things that had changed was my mouth wasn't as foul as it was. Um, prior to being a Christian I basically I, I threw away my words and, w and just swore vulgarly, horribly, often. And they caught a lot of this on camera. And so one of the things my housemates used to love to do was to make us all sit down as a student house or when I had friends around from church. They would sit us all down and say, let watch this, guys. And they'd play this video of me swearing and being really vulgar. And I'm like, I, I, lead a, I lead a cell group in this church. I lead a life group in this church. I pray in this church. And here my friends are like, look at this. This is what Jez is really like. And play this video of me you know, swearing. It's nothing, nothing too major. But, but I'd watch that and feel like, oh, I wasn't honoring God with my words. I was being cheap with my language. So I felt ashamed. That's what Paul says. You were once ashamed of the way you used to live, so why do you keep offering your body to that same way of being? But the reason I think, and I'll make a point out of this, because in society, increasingly, 
People are pursuing a form of spirituality that has very little regard for the body. And this is a problem for us because I think it happens in the church as well. To be spiritual for a lot of people is to retreat from practical things of life, to contemplate, to live in the mind, to have spiritual experiences. We attend our prayer meetings and we experience the power and the presence of God. Beautiful, sweet, good things. But Christianity is an embodied religion. Following Jesus is an embodied faith. Being spiritual is not something that just involves your soul, but your body as well. And people outside of following Jesus, I don't think, understand this in the way that we ought to in the church. And actually, that way of thinking, this is a subject for a different sermon, but that way of thinking extends itself into whole manner of social issues at the moment. The true you is the inner you. Well, what about the outer me? No, no, no. It's got nothing to do with the true you. But listen to this in the Bible. So, it talks about how we worship God in the book of Psalms, the, the hymn book of the ancient church. Psalm 47, clap your hands. Psalm 95, let us kneel before our maker. Psalm 150, praise him with dancing. Whereas we come and we think, I'll, if, I'm, if I'm feeling happy, I'll clap. If I'm feeling really excited, I might kneel and I'll rarely dance. And that's partly because they don't you know, put the chairs too close together. Otherwise, I know you all would. But for Christians, worship involves your whole body and not in response to your emotions, actually as a way of waking up your emotions. But again, subject for another sermon. But Paul, in a lot of his other letters, he contrasts the two masters that we live for, sin or Christ, and the way that our bodies are involved. So he talks about our hands. In Ephesians, he says, tell the one who used to steal to steal no more, but to do honest work. How do you live for Christ? Well, you use your hands. Instead of stealing, use your hands to do honest work. In 1 Timothy, he writes to them and says, tell the men, essentially, instead of fighting, lift their hands in prayer. Use your hands not to fight, but put them together in prayer to fight spiritually. Paul talks about our eating and our drinking life. He says, whether you eat or drink, do it all to the glory of God. And then in Ephesians 4, he says, don't get drunk on wine, but instead be filled with the Spirit. He even talks about how we're to use our mind in Romans 8. He says, the mind that is set on sin produces death. But in Philippians, he says, instead, whatever is true, whatever is pure, whatever is honorable, whatever is lovely, think about these things. The point is, following Jesus involves every part of your being. It involves your hands, your feet, your mind, your love life. Because for the Christian, your entire body matters. In 1 Corinthians, members of the church in Greece, early Christians were going to see prostitutes. And they were saying, well, what's the problem? It's just sex. It's just something I do with my body. What does it matter? And Paul writes to the church and says, you mustn't do that because your body's where Jesus lives. Again, this is increasingly common in our society. It's just sex. It's just a physical urge. What does it matter? It matters because Jesus lives here. Because your body is how you worship God in this life. Jesus says how you, how you treat the poor and in, in the body is an act of spiritual worship. He says but whatever you do for the homeless or for the naked and clothing them or for feeding the hungry, he says you did for me. The, the parts of your body matter. 
That's the point. How do we live then? We live in light of the new climate, the new government, the new laws, and the new lifestyle that Jesus offers for us. But of course, it is harder for us as Christians than it is in this, in case, in case you haven't been aware, this is a fictional scenario. You are not really in Christmas land. It's been a metaphor, the whole thing. And you knew that because you know to live for Christ happens in this world. You've not been teleported to a different place. That's why it's challenging. That's why it's hard. Because the world around you hasn't changed, you've changed. When I was a, a teenager, we, as a family, we went to America for a holiday and I, I fell in love with the country. I came home and I'd bought myself an American flag bandana and I'd had my ear pierced and got an American dollar earring. True story. It, it still fits as well. I, I didn't want to put it on because I didn't want to scare the children. For months, I wore this American bandana, American flag bandana everywhere I went, and this earring. Um, hence, my parents thought, another fad. <laughs> and I tried to live as though I was still in America. I'd been on holiday for two weeks, so I picked up some of the slur, and I could talk to people, hey guys. Uh, but before long, my friends started mocking me, as perhaps is appropriate. Um, <laughs> And I found it harder and harder to keep up the, um, the new way of being. It was harder because I wasn't actually in America. The climate was different. The government was different. The rules were different. English people were nastier. Um, and so I gave that up and tried to embrace my English identity again. For us as Christians, this matters though. We don't just go, oh, that was hard. I'll take my Christian hat off. I'll stop praying. It matters because, as we've been saying, under your, own, your old master of sin, it only produced death. In fact, Paul ends this chapter, doesn't he, by saying, listen, we're not living anymore in order to get wages. Because the old way of living was basically, I'm, I want to work hard so that I get what I deserve. If I work hard enough, I'll get what I deserve. I'll get a pay packet at the end. And Paul says, the wages of sin... You get your pay packet, you open it up, and you die. And actually, he contrasts it with the gift and makes the point that the wages of sin is death, yes, but ongoing death even after death. That the slave master of sin produces physical death and then for eternity spiritual death separated from God. That's why this matters. But the free gift, the free gift of God in Christ is eternal life. So we have to ask the question, when I'm living, am I living hoping for wages? Or am I living hoping for a free gift? So in the silly example of me failing as a dad, I left the school genuinely feeling really bad. I failed. I need to work harder. I need to try better. I try more. Be better as a dad. Come on. Because I want, I want wages. I want to get what I deserve. When I live as a Christian, I say, Lord, I don't deserve nothing. I do fail all the time. So I'm asking, give me a free gift. Give me life. Give me love. Give me forgiveness. Remove, cleanse, my, cleanse my conscience from shame. Lead me. I'll offer everything I have, my hands, my feet, my mind, my heart. I'll give it all to you because you're my master. And I throw myself on your mercy and say, forgive me. And as I do that, I'm lining myself up for a gift. 
And that's why this matters. That's what it means to live. How then shall we live? As those who are expecting a gift and not wages.